Hello, SOAS and beyond. Happy 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'm Noor Tashani, a student at the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy here at SOAS, and I'm privileged to be joined today with Dr. Rebecca Adami, Research Associate at SOAS, formal Fulbright Scholar at the Department of Arts and Humanities at Teachers College, as well as at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University. She very recently, and by very recently, I mean two weeks ago, published a book titled Women and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're also joined by Fatima Sator, research associate at SOAS as well, whose advocacy project to promote and give greater visibility to the Latin American women who fought for the inclusion of gender equality in the UN Charter was featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Associated Press, among others. She's currently deployed as a communication specialist at the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Geneva. Welcome to the both of you. I'm very happy to have you here to talk about feminist women's participation early on in the drafting of the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and where they come from. First of all, Dr. Adami, congratulations on the publication of your book. It's fresh out of the oven. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, so it's a publication with Routledge um, and uh, it's written in English and it's going to be sold and available throughout the world. Uh, And it's about the uh, women who were part of drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, but also the women who were part of drafting the um, Charter. And so it's written between 1945 and 1948. These are the years that I've been looking at. So, uh, And I'm focusing mostly on the non-Western women who were part of drafting these um, these original uh, documents of the UN. So it's um, it's looking at the the history of the UN through more feminist and post-colonial lenses to actually acknowledge the the women from countries that had just won their independence from colonial rule and uh, women from Latin America who were strongly feminist at the time. And I thought it was really interesting to look mainly at the conflicts between Western and non-Western women that and how they argued in different ways for the inclusion of, of women's rights in these documents. What was the sentiment then of these women coming in and saying, we want more inclusive language in these formative texts? How were they perceived by the delegates of the TED? Maybe you can get a little bit in depth with the tension that happened between Western and non-Western women or men as well, because it's interesting that you say that there was tension between women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just think that perhaps it's just the men that were against it. Yeah, so that's an interesting finding that um, because sometimes women are portrayed in historical accounts as one group or as like a homogeneous group representing the same interests. But what I found in the documents and the way that they argued, I saw that there were different kinds of conflicts between the women, depending on the context and the country they came from or the political debates in their countries at that time. So uh, one uh, conflict was between the UK and the American female delegates and the in Indian and Pakistani women delegates, on the other hand, uh, regarding the repetition of mentioning equality between men and women in the preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as it was mentioned in the preamble of the UN Charter. The a U.S. female delegate, for example, Eleanor Roosevelt, she was against a repetition of this. And when I was looking into the historical documents, I thought it was strange because she was also in many ways advocating women's rights. But 
At that time, there was also this opposition in the U.S. against the Equal Rights Amendment to the American Constitution. Why? <laughs> Because women and men were afraid that um, protective legislation for housewives, for uh, women, uh, working women, that those those protective legislations would would be erased, like all the work that had been done to in, to ensure that women were being you know, protected, that, that that would would be taken away. So there was this idea that full emancipation of women. Uh, would uh, sacrifice the protection of women. And I think it's interesting because we hear the same kind of arguments today against political rights for women and political freedom, saying that, oh, but are we willing to sacrifice the protection that women get in a patriarchal structure? And I think that this is something that women always have to ask themselves because it's a really interesting question. I, I ask myself that on a daily basis, like what choices do I make for being free, fully free? And what choices do I make when I'm kind of sacrifice some of my freedom uh, in order to feel protected? It's, it's brought a lot of issues um, that I think are really important today. And yeah, exactly. Um, still contemporary issues. Fatima, what about you? What brought your attention to this topic? And can you tell us a little bit about the advocacy campaign that you did run, which was very far reaching? Like I mentioned before, it was picked up by the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Associated Press, and later also turned into an HBO documentary about Berta Lutz. So can you tell us how did you get involved in this? So first, I think being, um, I'm Algerian. Uh, so being an Algerian woman and I was brought up in a, in a Muslim uh, culture, I've always been told that feminism was a Western issue. You know, it's not our, um, we have other problems to deal with. And so when I came here, so when I started, I did my master's here at SOAS, we, director of the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy, Dan Plesh, brought my attention and uh, my colleagues' attention, uh, so I'm doing this research with uh, Elise Distraction, on a memoir that was written by Berta Lutz, who was, uh, she's from Brazil, and she was present at the San Francisco conference, to, and she's one of the four women who signed the UN Charter. And in this memoir, she was saying how much she struggled as a Latin American woman against the countries that I had no doubt that would have been against gender equality, I mean, in some extent, who were the British and the American delegate. So reading through that just really made change my whole perception of the word and of history and of feminism and of global ideas. And it really, it, it touched me personally because I thought, oh, wait, I mean, people have been telling me that it's feminism is a Western concept, but actually 73 years ago, a Brazilian woman who was considered herself from the global South back then had to fight against what we call today the West to get gender equality in the UN Charter. So um, it was that that was the reason why I decided to um, to really to take to take this research forward. So we started this research with Elise, and we thought that once we have done that research, so once it once that it was published into a, a master's dissertation, we thought that it was not enough and not. It inspired us and we thought that it should really inspire other women, regardless of their background or culture, etc. So that's how we started doing actually an advocacy work, because one of the main, I mean, one of the main reasons is that 
nobody heard about this woman. We know so much about Eleanor Roosevelt. And she was, not to take out some credit from her, absolutely not. But why don't we know as much as, as we know about Eleanor Roosevelt than we know about Berta Lutz? It was the first time that I heard this name. So we decided, we thought, okay, we want the next generation to know Berta Lutz as much as we have known about Eleanor Roosevelt. And I would love to, I mean, why we've done so much advocacy is that we want really people, when you say feminism and when you talk about feminism at the United Nations, that some names from the global south comes out from the amount of people. And so, yeah, so that was a whole advocacy work, a lot of um, uh, what we would call persistence, but it's a lot of harassment, harassing people through email, wanting them to meet us, wanting them to... Uh, so it was... So we started first at... Um, uh, not a very at a very senior level, but then we understood that actually, if we want change, we would have to. It would have to come at, from a very senior level. We had to meet a lot of people asking for asking a lot of senior people to meet us, and uh, and it worked. So it took a lot of time, two years and a half, I would say. Um, but after a year of advocacy work, yes, we did have we did a press conference at the United Nations in New York. So that was covered by Associated Press and. Thanks to that, we really got it a bit in in most uh, in the, the the most important media. And uh, and then yes, recently a year ago, we were contacted by a producing company, producing partners who are mandated by HBO to produce a documentary about Berta Lutz. So finally, we are getting some some acknowledgement and uh, hopefully leaving a legacy. You mentioned that you were from Algeria and feminism is always seen as this Western construct, almost like a modern thing. But this happened 70 years ago. Why do you think this is almost like hidden? Is it known in the United Nations? Do conversations happen about the history of these texts that are very important and and influential to this day in our daily lives? What was the sentiment when you were speaking to the delegates at the UN? Do they know about this? And what change have you seen come out? out of your advocacy in speaking to these delegates? It's a global tendency that when good ideas come from the global south, they are either ignored or taken for imitation from the, from the West. And uh, that was Asharia, I think, a scholar who, um, who pointed that out. So that's, it's not surprising. The UN, no, didn't know about it. I think one of the reasons would be that they have other things to deal with in their own history. However, um, we, ha- we, we gave with Rebecca here a talk at the Trusteeship Council, and that was in... 22nd May? of May. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, was, uh, it was really amazing because the uh, delegations hosting this panel were um, southern delegations. So we had Brazil, we had Pakistan, we had India, we had Mexico, uh, yeah, Colombia, Colombia uh, South Africa. And, uh, and they were also uh, during the panel discussing about these historical women. And, and it was a, also a great turnout. We had around 200 people uh, within the UN coming to listen to this, this panel. And I think it was historical to have these delegations gathered in this room together and just celebrating and, and acknowledging the women, you know, and the origin of the United Nations. 
from the the global south. I thought it was really historical, and and you could also see when when we left the room how many women delegates were there uh, listening and being inspired. And then the other meeting came, and it was a majority, I think, of of male delegates. And you, so you could see that this is inspiring for for a lot of, uh, especially a lot of women working in the UN from these countries to also strengthen them in them today in their debates uh, for human rights. Exactly. It, it was the first time that actually the UN had organized an event acknowledging the contribution of the Global South to human rights. That's amazing. So how many women were there and what were the contributions that they made? What was the change that they made to these texts? So on the um, on the charter, we had 160 delegates signing the charter, around 850 present at the San Francisco conference. But the one among the ones who signed the charter, only four were women. So we had Brazil, Dominican Repu- Republic, China, and United States. However. As Rebecca was saying previously, this group was not homogeneous. Um, so their even their opinion among those four women were very different. So we had the U.S. and China being quite reluctant on having the word women in Article 8 and uh, the word sex in the charter. And then we had Brazil and uh, Dominican Republic really pushing for this wording. And then when we... We talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt is the woman who has been acknowledged in historical accounts. But there was another woman in the Commission on Human Rights who has not been acknowledged. Uh, and that is Hansa Mehta uh, from India. And she was a freedom fighter. And uh, she had organized uh, demonstrations and uh, civil disobedience um, activities during the freedom fight of, for India. And she had been jailed twice for her civil disobedience. And she was a strong advocate for women's rights. She had been writing during the All India Women Conference. She had been writing a declaration for women's rights that she presented there some year earlier before she was on the Commission on Human Rights. And she was one of the people in the Commission on Human Rights who criticized the wording all men because that was the first draft of the first article in a declaration stating that all men are equal. And today it's all human beings are equal. So that's a shift in wording that is really important. And she she and other women delegates from the Commission on the Statutes of Women, they, they always had representatives to all the meetings where the Declaration of Human Rights was being debated. They argued also for the inclusion of sex in the second uh, article on non-discrimination, saying that it was a slight oversight by uh, the Soviet male delegate that they had not uh, inserted sex as grounds for uh, for discrimination in that article. Um, But there were also other articles in which they argued for women's rights. For example, the US delegation didn't think that article on the rights in equal rights in marriage should fit in a universal declaration of human rights because that has to do with the private sphere. Whereas uh, women delegates like Shaisti Kremullah from Pakistan, she argued for the inclusion of that article in the declaration. And she was also arguing against child marriage. Only four women were among the 850 international delegates who signed the UN Charter. And it's amazing to me that their presence had changed such a pivotal text and ultimately the course of history. Is that a testament to having women present in decision-making spheres changing the course of history and perhaps highlighting issues that could otherwise be overlooked? 
overlooked. Why should women be present? This is just, I mean, this is one example of the importance of having women sit at the table. For example, if we would have an international organization represented by only women, if men would agree that that was a fair democratic representation, since we have 50% of the population being women, we should have 50% represented in the UN and in governments and everywhere, regardless of what issues they are uh, uh, putting forth and arguing for. But I think one of the reasons why women had a great, the women delegates who were part had a great impact both at the drafting of the charter and the declaration. In 1948, there were four women in the General Assembly uh, giving speeches when when the declaration was being adopted. And they had a great impact because they were really prominent women in national politics. And it was an historical moment when women had fought alongside men for you know national in, uh, independence they had fought for democracy in military regimes they had so it was a uh, women had been active during uh, the second world war they had pushed the frontiers for where they could be heard and what issues they could influence and you saw that also at the table when they argued for for women to be included because they had been using their voice on the national arena before so maybe just to add up on that well for the charter even though you had four women signing and present again not it wasn't the four of them who were feminists so again it doesn't mean that you're women that you do have feminist voice and it doesn't also mean that you're a man that you are not actually contributing to the to, to gender equality and in the charter there were men who actually were great supporter of uh, of article 8 and that's the first thing the other thing the second point is that i think we should move the conversation from participation to influence and that we're not speaking only about or oh, we do have 30% or we have 40% they were in san francisco they were pre- present however they were typing notes they were serving coffee so it doesn't mean that you have women, that you have feminists, that they're necessarily influencing the conversation. So we should definitely have them influence decision. Why? Because when you when you integrate when you integrate women into again feminist women uh, into the conversation into peacekeeping negotiation, but we just look at the whole. For example, in humanitarian crisis, women would have another point of view. Uh, about the crisis, so it so so you you make sure to deliver an efficient humanitarian response when you have everyone at the table because women see something that men didn't necessarily see. So yes, I think I think it's it's a very important. Uh, think to talk more about influencing the process rather than only participating. Do you think that women still struggle for recognition of their work to this day? Because these were influential women at the time. They were dominant in their societies, as you mentioned, educated and essentially in possession of some powerful positions. And they had contributed not only to their societies, but to the world at large. But then 70 years later, we still don't hear about them. We still don't know about them. Even at the UN, they're not spoken of. Do you think that we still struggle with representation to this, to this day? You brought the attention of the UN to this issue, but did they take ownership? Did the delegations take ownership and say, yes, these women were from these countries and we're proud of their contributions? Yes, I, I think that they did. And and, and they're also um, continuing to acknowledge this part of history. In, in December, they're going to have a photo exhibition uh, with uh, eight photos of, of these women, you know, from Pakistan, from India, uh, from Dominican Republic, after the 
all the male secretary generals at the main entrance at the UN headquarters in New York. So I think that's going to be really symbolic for all the visitors that go through that entrance to see these these women from these countries, knowing that that's actually the foundation of the United Nations. These are the voices. These are uh, the people who were really active in debating and arguing for human rights, because that is also another myth that human rights was being pushed for by Western states. I mean, they had, the Western states had everything to lose in promoting human rights because they were, they were the ones with the colonial power. They were the ones uh, having their, their citizens had rights. But if you would create a really strong discourse on human rights, you're questioning national sovereignty. You're questioning that citizens' rights is the only rights you have. You're questioning colonialism. You're questioning that you can oppress people. You're questioning occupation. You're questioning national power. So why would Western states at that table be the ones who are arguing the most for human rights? It doesn't really make sense if you're doing a power analysis also of the situation at that point. And you will see other researchers that are going into the 50s, 60s, where you have independence um, struggles in many African countries with very strong female leadership arguing very forcefully for for human rights, because that was part also of a decolonization process. So you have contributed a lot to this topic and pushing it forward, advocating for it. What more can we do as here at SOAS, as whoever is listening, what can we do to mainstream this knowledge to, to get more people to know about this? I would say also be more interested in your own countries, both like present political discussions, the rights that are written in your constitutions and also the history of your countries, because there are so many inspiring, strong female uh, role models from so many countries. Uh, and that is what I've been taking from this research that I, one of my uh, my role models is Shay Saker Mullah, a Muslim woman from Pakistan who was drafting laws on uh, personal law sharia uh, about women's rights and I thought that was really inspiring um, but there are so many more and I think that since SOAS has such a diverse and active student body you should look into you know this history read up and then make sure that that it's being also mainstreamed in courses and talked about and debated on on university campuses because I think it's it's really inspiring I th- Definitely. This is a very under-researched area. So do research. Uh, find out about all those voices that are out there that we still haven't found. It's a gift for the next generation because we're really offering them is role models. And so, yes, I think like amongst academia, we should really take it out to the outside, to the people who might not uh, read 550 pages of, uh, of a PhD. Great. Last statements. I think it, there is a quite a beautiful date this year. So Rebecca will be presenting in New York her book on December 6th. Yes. And at the, in the same day, Elisa and I are giving a TED Talk. So December 6th is quite an important date for us yes. in a way that they will be truly acknowledged. All those women will be at the same time in two different time zones, mm-hmm. really truly uh, acknowledged. Great. That's amazing. And uh, Dr. Rebecca, your book is available at the SOAS uh, uh, bookstore. Mm -hmm. If anyone is interested to grab it, where else can we find it? If university libraries, if they bring it in, then it's available for everyone. And and I like that. I think that uh, the more books that libraries have that is available for everyone, the better. 
and we'll mainstream this uh, understanding as well that way. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you.